Well, good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks, and I'm one of the elders here at Covenant Hope Church. If you're new to Dubai, or maybe you're not new to Dubai, you've been here for a while, but maybe you've just been visiting this church for a while, I want to encourage you that God has a purpose for you here in Dubai. And it's not primarily for you to get that job and make that money or any other purpose. It's a purpose that's in line with God's ultimate purposes. That's why He has you here. I want to encourage you to do two things if you are relatively new to Dubai, or maybe you've not done these things before. Number one, join a church. Join a church that preaches the gospel and gather with them regularly. Commit yourself to those people, not simply making a commitment to the organization, but to the people. And the second thing is, within that body, within that church, begin meeting with someone or a group of people to share your life with them, to read the scriptures, to pray with them. If you do those things, you will, I think, increasingly find your life aligned with God's purposes here. This afternoon, our text is Mark chapter 10. We are in the Gospel of Mark, it's in the New Testament. I want to encourage you to turn there in your Bible, and I'm going to read it to us. Mark chapter 10, it's in the New Testament, and we're beginning with verse 1 and going to verse 16. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, He taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your promise in Isaiah, where you say that so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. Oh Lord, cause your word to have great effect among us today. Make hard hearts soft. Guide the foolish to wisdom. And save those who are lost. Amen. 
Well, the main idea from this passage this afternoon is this. Live for God's good purposes and humbly enter His kingdom. Live for God's good purposes and humbly enter His kingdom. And if you take that main idea and you split it in two, those are the two points of my sermon this afternoon. Live for God's good purposes and enter God's kingdom humbly. Live for God's good purposes and enter God's kingdom humbly. Well, in this section of Mark's account of the ministry of Jesus, the disciples are being taught hard lessons about what it will cost them to follow Jesus. Ever since Jesus revealed to them that his destiny would be to suffer, to be killed, and to rise from the dead, they don't seem to understand how to live as a disciple of Jesus. Since they don't understand the cross of Christ yet, they don't understand following Christ. Because the cross of Christ shapes our following of Him. And so the disciples seem like the least likely people to serve as Jesus' top lieutenants or leaders for anyone else who would follow Him. And what is their number one problem? Well, it's what Mark calls hard hearts. It's actually what Jesus calls hard hearts. Twice in recent chapters, Jesus has told them directly that their hearts were hard. Now, when you hear people use that term hard heart or someone is hard hearted, it, it probably means kind of in normal usage that someone is mean or they're cruel. But in the Bible, it means something different. It means that that person is closed to God's leading and his purposes that they are in active rebellion against him and they don't want to listen or be shaped by God. Now, if the disciples who are following Jesus can have hard hearts, regular churchgoers like you and I can have hard hearts as well. The closer we look, the more you may see yourself in this passage or maybe lessons that you need to learn as a disciple of Jesus yourself. But let's start with the first situation that's in verses 1 through 12. And the point there to learn is that true disciples live for God's purposes. Live for God's purposes. Jesus was just up in Galilee, which was in the north, and he had come down to the town of Capernaum most recently, and he was giving private instruction to his disciples all along the way. But now he's continued even farther south, and he makes his way into the region of Judea, which was where the capital of Jerusalem was. Now, he's not made it to the capital yet, but he's in that region, and he actually travels across the Jordan River. So he's, he's a bit in an area that is often called a wilderness area. There are people there, but it's kind of rough and rugged. Now, this would be not too far from the place where Jesus first appeared publicly and where he was baptized by John the Baptist. And so he's well known there. And as a result, the crowds gather to him as they have. We've seen it all throughout the book of Mark. And what's the number one thing that Jesus does when the crowds gather to him? Well, he preaches and teaches about the kingdom of God. End of verse 1, it says, And again, as was his custom, he taught them. We've said it before, but it deserves to be said again. Jesus' main ministry function was to teach. 
It was to teach. It wasn't to heal people or to cast out demons or to feed the hungry or any of those miraculous things that he did, though he did those in great number. Primarily, Jesus taught. If you're not a Christian and you want to learn about Christianity based on the Bible, I want to encourage you, you can't just consider Jesus' acts of compassion and miraculous power which are probably the most famous thing and most commonly known about Jesus. He did miracles, which he did. But you need to take his teaching seriously, his words. That was the main thing that he did. And I want to encourage you to listen carefully to what Jesus teaches. You can't receive the Jesus of compassion and miracles, but reject the Jesus who teaches about sin and hell forgiveness and how to enter the kingdom of God. If you want one without the other, you're actually rejecting the whole Jesus. You're deceiving yourself. So listen to Jesus' teaching. Listen to what he has to say. While Jesus was teaching the crowds, some Pharisees, who are strict religious leaders, approached Jesus, it says, in order to test him. They asked a question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, their question wasn't an honest question. (laughs) This is a test, and it's likely that their goal was to get Jesus to say something that would get him into trouble with the local authorities. Jesus answers by asking a question, which Jesus often does. He likes to ask questions of those who ask him questions. He says, what did Moses command you? He directs them back to God's Word, doesn't he? But where in the writings of Moses do they go? Now, Moses had authored the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They go to the last one, Deuteronomy. They go to Deuteronomy 24, and they reply with something that comes out of those verses. They say this, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, it's true, there are allowances for divorce there in Deuteronomy 24. In fact, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, begins like this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house... Well, I'm going to stop there. There's more to it. But the rest of the verses describe a woman who's been divorced by her husband. She's been sent away, and then she remarries another man. So she has a second husband. If she's then divorced by that second husband, Moses commands that she cannot be taken back as a wife by the first husband again. That's what Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 is all about. Now, the Pharisees have quoted to Jesus one thing that Moses taught about divorce, what's allowed in God's law. But Jesus hits back hard. Look with me at verses 5 through 9 one more time. Let's focus on that. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus knows what causes the breakup of marriages, and he states it clearly and directly to these deceitful and conniving religious leaders. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. That's an indictment of these Pharisees. Jesus is telling them that this passage in Deuteronomy 24 is an accommodation for man's sin. And he replies with the parts of Scripture that should have been their guiding passages about marriage. Jesus quotes from the first of Moses' books, Genesis. In fact, from the first chapter, first of all, Genesis 1.27, Jesus quotes to them, God made them male and female. Now, Jesus is reminding them of this verse first because it describes how God designed man and woman. He created both of them in the image of God. That's what's there in chapter 1 of Genesis. They're of equal worth and dignity before God. This is something that the Pharisees seem to have forgotten as they're asserting a man's right to divorce his wife, but not the opposite, a wife divorcing her husband. And then in verse 7, Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And that describes how God intended for a man's primary loyalty to switch from his family of origin to his wife. They were two man and woman, but when they marry, they become one flesh, husband and wife. And Jesus then emphasizes to the Pharisees the nature of that one flesh union between a husband and wife, and he tells them resoundingly in verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The Pharisees are interested in what is permitted by God if a marriage is breaking apart because of hard-heartedness and sin. Jesus is rebuking them and telling, him, telling them that they should first be concerned with God, God's purposes, His overarching goal for marriage. The Pharisees point to what's allowed. Jesus points to what's commanded. You know, if you were a bank loan officer and someone came in to take out a loan and they filled out the paperwork and it got approved and you handed them the money, but as soon as you handed them the money, they turned around and they said, uh, now, what were the situations whereby I would not have to repay this to you again? That would be a bad sign. You might want to consider that loan again. Or if you get on board an airplane and you talk to the pilot and you ask him about his training and he tells you that he hasn't had a whole lot of training in how to fly a plane from one place to another, but boy, he knows a lot about how to crash land a plane. Or maybe, maybe you talk to a military commander and this military commander who wants to win battles actually has practiced how to retreat from battle most of all. That's not the kind of military commander you want in charge of your army. Listen, brothers and sisters, God is the author and the designer of marriage. The one who gave marriage its purpose. He created it, and we must look to Him to know how it works and what it's for. 
If you want to know how marriage should work, go to God's Word. Go to God's Word, especially those first two chapters in the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. Listen, don't look to the examples of marriage that maybe are just typical in your culture. Don't seek out secular self-help books that you can buy in the bookstore in the mall. Don't trust the advice of your non-Christian friends on Facebook or the secular marriage expert that's featured on all the TV talk shows. Only trust sources that point you back to the source, God's Word. God gave us the gift of marriage, and those of us who know the Lord must be guided by Him and Him alone. Listen, if you're not sure of the source of the marriage advice and counsel that you're getting, ask an elder in the church to help you evaluate. There's lots of bad advice out there. Now, I wonder if when we read this, you noticed that both the Pharisees and Jesus quoted from the Bible. Okay, that's good, right? They're both quoting from the Bible. But Jesus is explaining that the way that the Pharisees are looking to the Bible demonstrates that they have hard, sinful hearts. Isn't that curious? Hard and sinful hearts don't necessarily ignore the Bible, but they look at it in a particular way. They're looking at the Bible to see what they can get away with, what gives them the most freedom and autonomy, regardless of how it affects the people that are most vulnerable around them, in this case, the wife. So you and I must understand that there are right and wrong ways to read the Bible. One wrong way to read the Bible is to open it up just in order to pick out the verses that sound good to you, that allow you to do what you want and to obey them in the way that you want. So maybe you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, and you read the first phrase, everything is permissible. Close the Bible up, quick. You don't want to get to the end of that sentence if your goal is to just do what you want to do. You see, Jesus wants these men with hard hearts to instead have soft hearts so that they read their Bible searching for God's great purposes for them so that they read and obey to please their Father in heaven and honor Him in everything and in every way. That's what He wants for them. That's what they should have been doing as the religious leaders of Israel. How do you read the Bible? How do you pick Bible teachers that you listen to? Are you looking for loopholes in God's Word? Or are you looking for what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength? You know, later in chapter 12 of Mark, another religious leader will ask Jesus what the most important commandment of God is. Jesus didn't say, oh no, they're all equally equally important. No, he doesn't say that. He says something that comes from Deuteronomy 6. He says, you shall love the Lord your God. And he quotes what we read together earlier in our, in our service. And Jesus tells him the second most important verse or command in the scripture is love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love your neighbor. There's hierarchy in God's law. There are some verses that tell us 
What about God's ultimate purposes and goals? Now listen, don't make a mistake. All of God's word is true and all of it is important. But Jesus is telling us something important. One of the ways that you can learn to read the Bible rightly is to listen to good biblical teaching week in and week out. And over time, you'll learn how the Bible fits together and how to read it. How we interpret Scripture with Scripture. For example, if Jesus said that love God and love your neighbor are the two greatest commandments, we need to read our Bible that way, with that in mind, so that other commands that we see know, will know that they fit in with those great goals of, that God has for us. Reading and knowing the Scripture, reading it the right way, helps us follow God and obey Him. Now, many of you are single, and you might be wondering what this passage about marriage and divorce has to do with you. But I want to tell you a few things that you can do now to prepare yourself to be a good husband or a good wife in marriage, guided by God's Word. One thing is you can be a faithful friend right now. Be a faithful friend. Resolve conflicts that you have through repentance and humble conversation. Forgive one another. You need to practice being a faithful friend now so that you can be a faithful spouse later. Another thing is to treat each other here in the church as brothers and sisters in a family. Guys, especially, I want to encourage you to be a good friend to your sisters in Christ. Talk to them. Pray with them. Look out for their spiritual good. Another thing that you can do is to keep your life free of pornography. And this is a really specific thing that you can do, but it's really, really important. If you're practicing unfaithfulness now by indulging in pornography, you're setting the stage for unfaithfulness later. You can stop with God's help. Cut it out. Be ruthless. Love your future spouse now by keeping your mind free of pornographic images now. Now, if you're struggling with this, I want to encourage you to speak with an elder or a trusted friend that you can count on. But even if you're single, you can do these things and many more to prepare yourself to be a faithful spouse if God would give you that gift of marriage. Now, after this sharp conversation with the hard-hearted Pharisees, Jesus' disciples ask him about this matter when they're alone with him in the house. And that implies that they probably thought similar things about divorce as the Pharisees did. They were surprised at Jesus' answer. Now, we already know that they're struggling with hard hearts themselves. And when they ask him, Jesus replies with verses 11 and 12. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, this teaching from Jesus follows directly from Jesus' teaching that God has made a husband and a wife one flesh. If divorce separates a husband and wife and he marries another woman, then when he becomes one flesh with the new wife, he's committing adultery against his first wife because God still sees him as one flesh with his first wife. And Jesus says the same is true if a woman divorces her husband and remarries as well. 
Now, we need to push the pause button and talk some about divorce in the Bible. On this passage alone, Jesus seems to be teaching that the Old Testament divorce laws are now not legitimate and that all divorce was now wrong. And the challenge in understanding what God's Word teaches about this issue is that in other texts of the Bible, it seems to say something different. Now, we know that all of God's Word is true. There's no error in it. So there must be a way that those passages that seem to disagree do agree. The Gospel of Matthew tells this same true story. It's in Matthew 19. And in verse 19... Excuse me, chapter 19, verse 9, Matthew records Jesus as saying, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And that statement, except for sexual immorality, is called by theologians the exception clause. It's also recorded, by the way, in Matthew chapter 5, 32. Jesus says it there as well. So in Matthew, Jesus leaves open the possibility that divorce would be allowed in the case of sexual immorality. Now, again, we believe that all the Bible is true. It's without error. So how do these sets of verses fit together? You should know that we, the elders of this church, have been praying and searching the Scriptures in recent months in order to decide on a unified position from which we would give counsel to people in marriages that were under stress or perhaps where one spouse or the other was threatening divorce, our desire, you should know, is always that there would be reconciliation between a husband and a wife, even in the case of adultery or other grievous sins. It's always our desire. I personally know marriages that have been restored and healed after adultery has taken place. It's possible by God's grace. But faithful Bible scholars disagree on this issue of divorce in the Bible. There are people that I personally respect as Bible teachers that come down on this issue in a different place than we've come down as elders. It was inevitable that that would be true. We have prayerfully decided as elders that we believe that there are two exceptions when divorce is permitted by God's Word. Number one, in the case of adultery. We believe that in in that case, the Scriptures allow divorce to be undertaken by the offended spouse, though it is not required. It is not mandatory. Still, we've come to the conclusion that because one spouse has broken the one flesh union, the one flesh covenant that God has overseen, that the word, His word, permits divorce in that case. It should only be undertaken very prayerfully and I think under the counsel, with the counsel of elders and wise people around. The second allowance or exception allowing for divorces in the case of abandonment, abandonment, which includes both desertion and abuse. Now, I'm not going to fully explain the scripture that we base this on because it would take up all afternoon, 
But if you're interested to explore it, you should read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And if you have further questions, please come and talk to one of the elders here in the church. We would love to talk to you about this. We're currently considering what the Bible teaches about the issue of remarriage after divorce, which is an even more challenging issue to assess. So I would ask for you to pray for us as we do that. We want to be guided by God's word. We need wisdom from him. Now, if you've experienced the breakup of a marriage, whether you were the offending spouse or the offended spouse, whether your divorce was what we would call biblically allowable or not, Jesus' purpose here is not to make you feel guilty. Jesus has already said in the book of Mark that all sins can be forgiven. If you brought about the end of a marriage in a way even that violates God's word, there can be forgiveness in Christ. If someone divorced you, or you divorced someone for biblical reasons, keep looking to Christ for healing and restoring love as you grieve the breakup of that marriage. A divorce is like a death, and we need Christ's love and compassion to heal us in that. Jesus stands with you in that loss. He's present for you. Have no doubt about it. Now, Jesus is pointing out that it's hardness of heart, sin that creates the circumstances that lead to divorce. It happens that way every time. The fact is that all of our marriages in this church will be touched by sin because even the most godly Christian still has a sin nature and will, from time to time, give in to sin against their spouse. And our spouses see more of our sin than any other person. So what do we do? Sinners bound together in one flesh by God. Well, we, we turn to the gospel. We turn to the gospel. We turn to Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. The gospel is the good news that sinners can be made right with a holy God. It's the news that even though God is holy and everyone, every one of us has rebelled against him and deserves eternal punishment, in love, he took that punishment that we deserved when he was crucified on the cross. And he rose to new life in the resurrection. And when we turn from our sin and trust in him, all of our sin can be forgiven. And he sends the Holy Spirit to live in us then, enabling us to not be dominated by sin, but to walk in his ways and please him. And one of those ways is in forgiveness of our spouse and reconciliation in our marriages. That's husbands and wives living at the foot of the cross. Repent, repenting when they sin. Asking for forgiveness when they sin against one another. We work through difficult issues as Christians in marriage, trusting that God's design for marriage is until death. Now, if you're struggling in your marriage, I want to encourage you, come and talk to an elder, but more importantly, turn to Christ. Learn how to appropriate the gospel in your marriage and to the problems you're facing. 
talking to wise people who want to help you appropriate the gospel in your marriage is one of the things that church leadership and the church community is for. Don't listen to that voice inside your head that tells you that it's too embarrassing to tell anyone what's going on. (laughs) No, please don't do that. Please don't listen to that voice that says that the problems will just go away if you keep ignoring them. Those are lies. And as Christians, we need to seek to live open and honest lives together, helping one another to fight sin and live in righteousness, even in our marriages. There's not a single marriage in our church that's not experienced trouble and hardship and pain and and needed counsel. There's not a one. Satan wants you to keep your marriage troubles hidden. He wants you to try to resolve it without help. Take my word for it, every marriage breakup that I've ever seen is because one or both parties in the marriage ignored sinful patterns and refused to resolve the conflict. They just let it go on and on and on. Guard your marriage, brothers and sisters. These hard-hearted Pharisees and disciples would look to God's word to find the maximum freedom to end a marriage and move on to another wife. Now, that wasn't unusual for them. Some schools of Jewish theology would even read that passage in Deuteronomy as allowing a man to divorce his wife for anything annoying or irritating to him, even a badly cooked meal or maybe chores that the husband deemed to have not been done properly. Listen, if we lived under that kind of interpretation of God's law, I shudder to think of what would have happened if Joanne had the same rights and I was responsible for the cooking in our home. It'd probably be all over with. Jesus is teaching us here that he's raising the status of women. Jewish divorce policy gave the man the control of the marriage. But Jesus has corrected that, and he's declaring that women are equal to men in dignity, and therefore a wife is not a man's slave. And he declares that it's neither the man or the woman who controls the marriage, it's God who is the Lord of the marriage. In Ephesians 5, Paul teaches us that marriage is designed by God to be a picture of Christ represented by the husband and the church, his bride represented by the wife. Every marriage is to portray that beautiful picture of Christ's self-sacrificing love for the church and the church's responding love to him. Because of their hard hearts, these disciples would cast a wife out for the least of of offenses. But Christ is the true and faithful husband who keeps his covenant promises through good times and hard times. He will never cast us out. He will never push the church away. He died for us. Even when we struggle with faithfulness, faithlessness, He is faithful. Now this is a challenging teaching on marriage here in these verses, but it reminds us that true disciples of Jesus will always live for God's good purposes, especially in marriage. The last four verses of our passage this afternoon might seem less shocking than Jesus' words on marriage, but they're no less important. And they teach us that true disciples of Jesus enter God's kingdom humbly. That's verses 13 
through 16. Enter God's kingdom humbly. Verse 13 begins by shifting to a time later with the Pharisees and the marriage teaching uh, with his disciples in the house. And here, people were bringing children to Jesus. It says that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. (laughs) These people wanted their children to be blessed by Jesus, and to give a blessing was uh, a common part of Israelite culture. Blessings were oftentimes performed by a patriarch or a a male leader in a household, and, and those blessings oftentimes were a passing on of one's property or one's name. The person giving the blessing would often put his hands on the one being blessed. I mean, we see blessings being given in many of the Old Testament stories, especially in Genesis, for example. Now, these people perhaps wanted Jesus to speak words of prayer over their children. Now, you may remember from last week's sermon that after the disciples were caught arguing about which one of them was the greatest, Jesus called a child to himself and he put his arms around him and he told them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. (laughs) Now, you would think that there wouldn't have been any doubt in the disciples' minds about Jesus' love and welcoming attitude towards children But the disciples have hard hearts. And one of the effects of having a hard heart towards God is an inability to hear or understand His Word, His teaching. He may have said it and illustrated it earlier, maybe even multiple times, but they have the attitude that they're the privileged few who have access to Jesus. (laughs) It's ironic that the hard hearts that are represented in the Pharisees in verses 1 through 12, would send a wife away with a certificate of divorce. And here we have the disciples sending children away from Jesus. Is it any wonder that hard hearts break up families and reject helpless children? When Jesus found out what they had done, oh, he was indignant. That means Jesus was very angry. The language is strong here, and his rebuke makes it clear. Look with me, beginning in the middle of verse 14 and into 15, he says, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. For all the time that they've spent with Jesus, the disciples still don't know what kind of people are welcome in the kingdom of God. And based on their arrogant and proud attitudes, their place in the kingdom of God is actually in question as well. At this stage, they seem like the least likely to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Those with hard hearts don't get in. Now make make no mistake, These children are welcome in the kingdom, not because they're sinless. Children aren't sinless. I had four of them. The reason that they're welcome is that they're helpless. They have nothing to offer in exchange for getting into the kingdom of God. They're small. They're insignificant. They're not particularly valued in this society. They're powerless. They can't pay back any favors done for them. 
To love and to value children was an unusual thing in the ancient Near East. And when Christians took on the same welcoming and loving attitude that the Lord Jesus had toward children, it made them stand out in the culture. It showed. In one early Christian letter written about a hundred years after Christ, written by a Greek Christian author defending the lifestyle of Christians, he says this, As citizens, they, Christians, share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Killing unwanted infants was common among non-Christians in the ancient Near East. So Jesus' attitude toward children was revolutionary. Imagine people lined up to get into an exclusive club or an exclusive restaurant. The first one flashes a business card with his name on it. Well, you can come in. The next one pulls out a wad of cash. Well, you can come in. The next one mentions the name of influential friends, maybe the owner of the club or the restaurant. You can come in. But these children are the opposite. Jesus says they're just the perfect people to be welcomed into the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God can only be entered by those who know that they have no right to be there. Brothers and sisters, be warned. Be warned. If you think you deserve to enter the kingdom of God, then you're in great spiritual danger. If you think, listen, God must be happy to have me on his team, think again. You're only welcome in the kingdom if you recognize that you bring nothing in your hands to deserve Jesus' love and grace. Even more, that means that as a church, actually, we're a community of the unqualified. We're a gathering of the undeserving. And no matter how mature in Christ we get, no matter how far our sanctification progresses, no matter how godly we become, boasting and competition among us is completely excluded. <laughs> the one who is the most godly is the one who knows best that they're sustained daily by the grace of Christ and by grace alone. Competition, jealousy, they make no sense for Christians walking in the Spirit. Listen, are you looking down on someone else in the congregation? Do you feel like you're better? Set aside your pride. Remember that you are a follower of Christ by grace. You didn't deserve His love on the day when you became a Christian. And there's not been a day since that you haven't needed His grace. Jerry Bridges has this wonderful quote. Our worst days are never so bad that we're beyond the reach of God's grace. And our best days are never so good that we are beyond the need of God's grace. Never beyond the reach of God's grace. Never beyond the need of God's grace. That's Christians. The only kind of competition that should exist between us is to try and outdo one another in love and honor. Now, for those of you who are not Christians, 
you're always welcome here at Covenant Hope, and you're welcome, more importantly, in Christ's kingdom if you recognize how unqualified and undeserving you are to enter. (laughs) Maybe you look at your life and you see all the wreckage of bad decisions that you've made, marriages that are troubled or have been broken, sexual sins that you've committed. Maybe there's long-running conflicts in your family or with close friends that have never, ever been resolved. Maybe you struggle with hatred or envy or jealousy that rises up in you every day. How could Jesus welcome you? Well, you have nothing that qualifies you to be welcomed by Him. And now that you see that your hands are empty, you can receive what he has to offer you. Your, friend, your hands have to be empty. He offers forgiveness of sins, eternal life, entrance and adoption into the family of God. Acknowledge how helpless and undeserving you are, and he receives you. It is that simple. Turn to Christ. Look to Jesus in faith. Take on the attitude of an insignificant child. God will not keep you out of His kingdom. Only you can do that. A hard heart that rejects God's loving purposes or an arrogant attitude that thinks that they deserve entrance to the kingdom of God. That's the only thing that can stand between you and the immense and unmeasurable grace of God in Christ. Listen, I mentioned that Jesus is the faithful bridegroom that will never send his bride, the church, away in divorce. But here, in these last few verses, we see that Jesus is the loving father that welcomes children who don't deserve his love because of anything that they've done. That last verse, verse 16, describes Jesus taking the children in his arms and blessing them. In Christ, we receive the greatest blessing that the Father could grant, eternal life in our adopted family of God. Those of you who know the Bible's story know that these hard-hearted disciples were eventually humbled, and they became lowly servant leaders, just like their master Jesus. They're actually the ones telling the story about the foolish things they did. They want us to learn from their mistakes. True disciples live for God's great purposes and they humbly enter his kingdom. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that nothing is required to enter your kingdom except for an awareness of our helplessness and how completely undeserving we are of your love and mercy. Lord, we thank you that you looked on us in love. We who have your image, each one of us, built into us, and yet it's twisted and distorted by sin, and you showed us love in Christ. We praise you and thank you.
in Christ's name, amen.